0: Very early in this series, I made a statement and, and it was one that I believe really, really matters for all believers in any generation. Uh, it seems to have come out in, in, in the, as we've studied Hebrews here, but I really believe it's something we need to grasp hold of in a big way. It's simply this. No Christology equals no anchor. If you don't know the, Jesus in an intimate way, in a deeper sort of way, if we don't study Christ, that's what Christology is, the study of Christ, if we don't study Him, if we don't learn Him, then we will not be anchored in this faith life that we have. We must have steps in our life that scratch below the surface of who Jesus is and what He accomplishes for us. We need more than a vocabulary of just one-liners and clichés. We need not just to be around faith, but being active in it. And rubbing shoulders with other people and learning from each other as we go about who Jesus is. If it's little beyond all that, we'll inevitably end up with an attitude or a course of action that looks like drifting. That was one of the fears of the writer of Hebrews, that the congregation that they were writing to was drifting. And it was was mainly because, and we've learned along the way, that their Christology has been all over the shop. They've not known Jesus the way they've needed to, and it has led to a drifting way of life. But knowing Christ matters. It's the stuff that conviction is made of. It's vital that believers work towards understanding the fullness of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, our journey in Hebrews so far has been a nine-chapter journey in essential Christology. And this is going to reach its conclusion in what we read today before going into some very practical outworkings of that. The immediate audience in the first century, if they took this letter completely at its word, would be assured of the most secure and anchored expression of faith possible. And the point of the anchor that they're trying to write here, try to set up here, is that they could make a clean break with any and all pre-existing religious expressions and still be assured of their current standing and their future hope. The most prevalent religious expression in their midst was Judaism itself. And this congregation is being challenged to see their salvation in a whole new way. Their salvation depended on making a clean break from those things. We've seen a number of theological ideas coming out in strands throughout the course of this book so far. Different things being shown about who Jesus is. And now it's being woven together into something singular and strong, like a rope. And the writer is now calling ex-Jews and ex-everything-elses, like you and I are, to grasp that scarlet cord fully and place their full weight of trust on that alone. With all that said, we're going to look at today's passage. We're going to be in the first half of chapter 10 and Andrew Potts in two weeks time is going to pick up the second half of chapter 10 and uh, he's already writing furiously for that and is looking forward to sharing. He's actually excited and I'm excited for that. But today we'll just look at the, last, the first half of the chapter and we'll do it piece by piece today and uh, we're just going to start at verse 1 and, and look at a few bits as we go along here. Let's just look at the first four verses. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Keep your thumb in there, keep your devices open. We'll get back to that in a moment. One of my, in fact, my closest friend, my best mate, has just done the drive that I absolutely love doing. I've only done it once, I was a little bit jealous that he got to do it. He's been transferred uh, for work. He's in the military. He's made the big move from Melbourne to Perth, and uh, and he drove across. Now, in his case, he took his teenage son. I think they got a bird in a cage, some leftover luggage, a very yappy lap dog, and a Doberman. <laughs> that protected the car in Um all crammed into a Toyota Corolla. (laughs) The logistics don't sound all that attractive to me. But I was mildly jealous that uh, he was doing a drive that I so far have probably found to be one of my favourites in Australia. I felt part of the drive because I was guiding him on where to stay and what was coming up. He had not done the drive. But it would have been awesome to be in the passenger seat with him, just the time and all sorts of stuff. It was never going to happen. But I do enjoy long drives. Jen, not so much. But I like them. I like watching the signpost count down the Ks to the destination. I enjoy the things you stop for along the way, randomly. You don't have a plan for it. There's a gigantic banana. We better stop. There's a gigantic this, we've got to stop. There's a gigantic that, we've got to stop. <laughs> the country of giants, love it. I've seen both giant sheep in this country. There's one in Goulburn, there's one over in Western Australia. I enjoy the micro elements of the trip that help the big number wind down. If it's 3,800 k's to Perth from Melbourne but there's an interesting place to stop at every couple of hours. A guy like me with my ADHD, he kind of keeps me sane, being able to know that that's coming. One element I distinctly remember seeing on the highway when I took the drive was coming to something like this. That's the wrong end of the... That was not the one I saw, because that's coming from the west, but the one coming from the east. point where I officially entered the Nullarbor. I'd heard the stories from truck drivers. My dad was a truck driver. He laments the fact, or he did lament, that that he actually never got to drive a truck across the Nullarbor. Most of his work was local and he never really enjoyed that. I heard stories about it one day not being a paved road. It was one day pretty treacherous to do this run. I'm grateful it wasn't when I was there. I did it in 2004. Again, Jen and I had a new opportunity ahead of us in Western Australia and Jen said, I'll fly later. And, and we, we left, and I left everything behind, including 99 cent petrol. We took all that we owned that was left after we'd sold a flat full of stuff in a little box trailer, 6 by 4 hitched it to a 97 Falcon and hit the road. And it was a great drive, a great experience. I was in day three, passing this sign, a couple of hours after sleeping overnight in Sojourner. And here is where I actually felt the full force of the gravity of the trip I was on. I was coming to a sudden awareness that I was now in the wilderness. Aided by a few other signs. My CDMA mobile phone back then, having no signal. My car radio having having static getting greeted by a dingo at the only road stop and seeing more kangaroos on the road than trucks and cars. It was a quiet day. I had a printed map, not a GPS. And there was a little red light on the dashboard saying my airbag might pop at some point <laughs> that had been going since Port Augusta. <laughs> texted a friend about it. He goes, it's just a Ford, Relax." in that wilderness setting the most helpful part of my trip the thing that helped me look forward and stay sane were the signposts next petrol in exactly this many kilometres next town this far away final destination not far now son all these things helped me along the way and they were the best technology I had to keep me focused on the road ahead. And one way we can understand today's passage and even the last few is actually with the idea of signposts. The old covenant began in a wilderness. It was mediated by ordained priests. It was centred on a sanctuary. But all those detailed things are to be seen as signposts in the wilderness, according to our passage today. They're pointers that guide us towards something even greater. We've been told already that the tabernacle is a shadow of something heavenly, a copy of the pattern that already exists in the presence of God. It was an expression in the present that pointed to a future reality, a signpost letting us know the new covenant was ahead. And this morning we're shown that the Mosaic Law is to be seen this way also. Exodus 24 tells us this law was read out by the people and in unison they all agreed fully to its terms. This law was then sprinkled in blood and rendered enforceable, but it was always to be understood in terms of being a pointer to a greater reality, a signpost to a greater reality. And it seems to our writer here in these few verses that this should have been obvious to everyone right out of the gate. Every Jew should have already known this, should have already worked this out. The very fact that it required constant work should have shown this idea. The very idea that atonement needed to be sought every year should have shown them this. The reality of going home still left alone with your guilt, having ceremonially clean hands but your heart and your mind not so much. This should have shown the law to be a pointer, not the full reality. Otherwise, the writer says... One offering should have been enough to wipe this entire slate clean. People would have gone home with their consciences cleaned, with every part of their being cleansed, not just some ritual or ceremony being met. The writer says that the annual sacrifices were an annual reminder of sin. They anticipated a sense of falling short in the people. It anticipated a need of cleaning house every year in the tabernacle. It sufficed to maintain covenant with God and ritual cleansing from sinful acts. It gave an outlet for a person to understand that sin was serious in the presence of a holy God, that they had something they could do something about that. It sufficed to remain in community with each other. In and of itself, it was a good arrangement because God was its architect. But it was always a signpost to something far greater. And as Israel edged closer and closer to the day the reality came, other signposts emerged. Jen will tell you this, when I'm driving, I sometimes go into autopilot. We all do. It can be a 400 metre drive, it can be 4,000 k's, somewhere on the way I will be in autopilot. Where are we going again? He's always pointing out streets I've missed or (laughs) something. We're supposed to be back there. (laughs) Israel did the same thing throughout its history. And now we're being shown in the next few verses another example of one of the signs that Israel's probably driven past in their history as they've gone through things. So let's keep reading from verse 5 here. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Keep your thumb in there, we'll come back one final time in a moment. (laughs) This is another example of a signpost a bit further down the road from the wilderness and one of a few being made around this particular time. The quote being used here is from Psalm chapter 40, in particular verses 6 to 8. If you study the psalm, you'll see it being a proclamation of the salvation of the Lord, David writing it. Where he writes about the Lord gave a new song to me. And this is understood, verses 6 to 8 is part of the new song that is given to David as a response to the salvation of the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews sees it as a prophetic statement pointing to the greater king who is Jesus. When we explore this, we see a prophetic image of the Son interacting with the Father as Israel's sacrifices are being made before him. And we see the increasing displeasure from God as the sacrificial system became one of essentially going through the motions. Hebrews has already told us that God found fault with the people and their dealings under the old covenant. And this idea seems backed up out of the psalm just being quoted now. We see this prophetic idea repeated a number of times in the Old Testament. Other signposts. In Isaiah 1, we read that the rituals were there, but the Lord had gotten to the point of complete rejection of them. No point having all the right bells and whistles when you didn't practice justice. as what's been written in that chapter. We see this grief again from God in Hosea 6. The absence of mercy being evidence the rituals were losing their stick. Jesus himself brings out the verse twice in Matthew's Gospel when dealing with the Pharisees. Speaking of Jesus and getting back to the quoted psalm, we're coached to see Jesus making key statements to the Father in this exchange. seeing the Father's desire for something more than what was in place at the time and essentially volunteering to be the one to bring in the new way. In humble service, like Philippians 2 tells us, Jesus took up the body prepared for him. Knowing it was set apart to be a perfect sacrifice, he still committed himself to the perfect will of the Father. The final signpost used by our writer is, of course, Jeremiah 31. For the last few chapters, he's been referring to this. He's been pretty much offering a mini-sermon on the chapter. And now he completes these thoughts as we keep reading the last bit of our passage today. So, we'll read verses 11 to 18 together now. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time. Says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts... I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Here's the deal. All the signposts the Jews had seen and the few that have driven past in a daze all point to Jesus and the New Covenant. And we now have some final thoughts on the whole New Covenant deal before addressing how the congregation should live in light of that. It gets really practical in the next message, and Andrew gets the chance to dig into that. But here's some awesome thoughts about the work of Christ, just to complete the, the, the teaching on that at this time. First up, we have a contrast between an earthly priest who stands... And Jesus, who sits. This tells the audience that the priestly work is done. Remember, we're writing here to people who are used to, who don't have a culture of, you know, of a lot of desk jobs. There's a culture there when you worked, you were on your feet working. You were doing things with your hands. It was blue collar. It was, you know, if you're manning markets, whatever it was, you were on your feet. And because you were on your feet, you were working. You rested when you were off your feet, when you sat. This included the work of the priests. Priests would stand to do their work. And only when they were resting would they sit. We read here that Jesus, after being both the greater priest and perfect sacrifice, has rightly taken his seat. Because the deal of this sacrifice is repeated many times in this passage alone. It's once and for all. The work is done. No more annual sacrifices, no cleansing rituals, no burnt offerings, no more human priesthood mediating a covenant deal that has been laid aside. The work of Jesus, as he promised, is a completion of what was once the case and is also the beginning of something completely new. We read here that this single, once-for-all sacrifice achieves so much more then the sacrifices of the Old Testament too. I love the phrase that we just read out in this. He makes perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's a massive sentence to get our heads around, for the Jews particularly to get their head around. He makes perfect forever those who are being made Holy. I have to do a bit of a throwback here to our Leviticus series to show this out a bit. We had this thing called a holiness spectrum there. If we understand this thing, the most holy things are the things pertaining to God himself. The holy of the holy of the holy, right? And the most holy place was the throne room was, was a picture, an image, a sketch of the throne room of God. Things deemed holy were set apart or sanctified for the purpose of ministering before God. The Old Testament priests were required to remain in this state while they were rosted on. This is why they offered bulls for offerings, while the general public offered goats. The Levites, not on the roster for priesthood duty, were not allowed to live below the clean line. The general worshipping public lived in a general state. Everyday life was in the domain of the unclean. Outside of the tabernacle, you walk through, you squash a bug, you're ritually unclean. It's kind of like you know, you're just in contact with stuff. Life just gets on you. Ceremonially, you are unclean. And they only had ritual available to them that could upgrade them as high as clean for the sake of worship. Worship. As a result, this greatly limited their participation in the offerings and it limited their proximity to the glory cloud. It was only so far they could go and it was nowhere near the holy places. But here, through Christ, believers are described as being made holy. We often speak of holiness as a bit of a process or a journey, like a gradual change of character. And I can see a bit of a journey in that and we don't always walk that way. I certainly don't walk every day of my life in the exact same... If I took what the Old Testament said, live as this holy position, live like a priest, how would I be doing at that? How would you be doing at that? I don't think we'd be doing very well at all, right? The writer of Hebrews describes holiness as an immediate change of condition in the life of a believer. In their mind, holiness means forgiven. It means being given access to God and being eternally redeemed. A Jew would radically be transformed by that sort of faith. Because a Jew could only get as high as clean in their current expression. To go back to their Judaism expressions, to go back to the sacrifices, to go back to what they knew through the covenant, the old covenant, actually downgraded the level of of cleanness and holiness that they could actually be. Because Jesus offered so much more. Jews once did life in an unclean state, but ritually cleaned up before and in order to worship. And as I say that sentence, I suddenly think, how many times do you and I approach faith like that? How many times do we clean up before going to God? How many times do we see ourselves as, as, as just, oh, I'll give my life to Him, when I've got myself sorted out. I'll serve him when I get sorted out, when I get a few things cleaned up in my life. I'll, I'll connect with a church when, I, when, I, when I'm clean enough for the place not to cave in on me. I'll get baptised when I'm ready. I'll do these things and, be, and pursue Christian stuff, but I'll clean up first, give me some time to get all that right, and then hopefully I'll be okay with God and I'll come to his presence. I hope by now you're seeing the absolute futility of that. Because even the people who knew God the best in ancient times couldn't achieve that level of holiness in their life. It wasn't available to them. We're invited to come front and centre and boldly before God. And yet one can only do that if they're somehow able to become holy first. That is true. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no even discussion about becoming holy in the mind of the writer here. But these last few chapters show us ever so clearly that Jesus has made every way for that to happen. He entered the heavenly sanctuary first with his blood. This means the place has been purified the right way for man to enter. Through faith, we choose to cling to the work of Jesus, knowing that Jesus is in the sanctuary and on the throne. When we knock on the door of the sanctuary, there isn't a priest who takes our offering and sends us away. Instead, we're greeted by Christ himself who leads us to the throne, looks at the Father and says, He's with me. Through faith alone and not through works, we are made holy. And because of the work of Christ and our newfound state of holiness through that, there is direct access to the most holy presence of God. You can't do anything to make that any better. Only Jesus makes that possible. And we're assured that it's a complete thing here. The salvation we receive is described as perfect. It's a complete deal, nothing more to do. And it has eternal value. Despite all the warnings earlier in this letter about falling away and losing it all, we're assured here that salvation is an eternal deal. I love that that journey, that just that that, that thought process in itself. All sin is forgiven. All sin once forgiven is forgotten. All consciousness can be cleansed through the work of the Spirit. All people can be made holy and given access to God's very throne. And all of us are completely dependent on the person, work and blood of Christ for any of that to happen. The work of Jesus is perfect. When we think of all that the Jews once had to do, and understand they can only get halfway there. When we think of all the things that we could probably human do, and probably not even stack up anywhere near as good anyway. And when we think of all that's available in Christ through faith, why would we want to approach Jesus any other way? Why would they... Why would we? Let's stop and let's pray.